0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Broge is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr.
1: Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad you can join us. If you are a first-time listener for the next hour here at 88.7, we'll be taking people's questions There's several ways in which you can communicate to us. You can call us direct at the uh, 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that 843 number is 525-1859. Or if it's easier, 1-877-THE-CALL-LETTERS-WAGP-980. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, stands for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. And uh, we will receive your question that way as well, or you can, again, call and just dictate, though we do give a priority to live callers whenever we're able to do that. So, Rick, it's great to be here today in this beautiful summer day, and we're glad we're here.
0: Indeed, Pastor. And we've got a number of questions that have come in. Kelly from Georgia writes, In the Bible, where it talks about Jesus turning water into wine, is this an unfermented wine that has no alcohol in it? Many people will say it's okay to drink wine because Jesus turned water into wine for the people to drink at a wedding. I was thinking this was probably an unfermented wine that had no alcohol in it. The Bible says Noah got drunk on wine. I assume this must have been fermented wine that he consumed, which made him intoxicated. Could you please explain and elaborate on this? Also elaborate on what you tell your children or someone who says that Bible does not say it is a sin to drink alcohol. I have a long spill that I tell spiel I guess that I tell my children that is from the word of God and that I believe is God's heart on the matter but I would like to know what you say when someone says there uh, nowhere in the Bible does it say it's sin to drink alcohol what do you tell people this is an issue that my teen children say has been brought up in their Sunday school class and the answer is split down the middle on people's opinions on this matter and yes at church People are split on how they feel about drinking
1: alcohol. Well, Kelly from Georgia asks an excellent question. Let me see if I can respond. Of course, the context of your question comes from the first public miracle that the Lord Jesus did. And um, it was in the miracle at Cana. And of course, uh, he turned the water into wine. Now, of course, every time the word wine is mentioned, to say that it's always non-alcoholic is less than faithful to the scripture. Uh, The word is oinos in Greek. It's yayin, typically. Those are the two principal words used to describe wine. And in both cases, they can refer to either fermented or unfermented. The context determines everything. And of course, if you remember, um, they ran out of uh, wine. And so um, Jesus did the miracle. And we read here in John 2, beginning here in verse 9, it says, when the a uh, head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. They had witnessed Jesus literally taking these water pots and turn them into wine. The head waiter called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, um, depending on your translation, that's the way the NAS reads it, when men have drunk freely, than that which is poorer, you have kept the good wine until now. So the master of the banquet, he didn't know the origin of the wine, but he saw, boy, this is really great stuff. He recognized its quality. And, of course, uh, the servants knew what was going on. And when you are a servant of the Lord, you tend to be on the inside track. You know God's Word. You, You know what's happening. If you're a servant in the White House, you know maybe what's happening. If you're a servant in the government governor's office you know what's taking place and that's often the case but back here with this head waiter uh, people typically serve the best food and the best drink at the beginning of a feast and in some respect we might do the same we're having some folks over and a bunch of folks show up and we pull out the roast beef and and then they eat it all so we go for the baloney maybe we start with uh Coke Zero or Pepsi Light or whatever it is that we're using, and we run out of that. So we we go after the Czech Cola, and we go after Dr. Wiz instead of Dr. Pepper because we've run out of the high-quality uh, product that we want to serve uh, those of us um, who want to provide the best for our guests. Now, you need to know this is kind of a headquarters verse, Uh, for the issue that you've raised for Christians saying, hey, look, uh, the Scripture doesn't teach against drinking. In fact, uh, some even would argue from this passage of Scripture that the Scripture affirms it's okay to get high. Uh, You've often heard me say there are three verses in the sinner's Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Judge not lest you be judged, and Jesus made wine. And so they argue that people were so high, buzzed as it were, that the that um, the poor wine should have been served. When people are so drunk, they can't tell the difference. And by the way, someone called in a few weeks ago, maybe it's a month ago now, about my assessment of a new series that is on the life of Christ. It's called The Chosen. And I said, well, I haven't watched every single episode, but what I've seen was good and actually accurate, and they pulled out a lot of Jewish nuance that was typical of the day and even typical today amongst Jewish people in terms of the way they pray and uh, different uh, Shabbat traditions and so on. Uh, But I said what I've seen was good. Well, I've seen a few more (laughs) since then, and I saw the one where they did the miracle of Cana, and they made it seem that, well, now that the people were really somewhat high, Jesus then turned the water into wine and again what's surprising is hey normally you serve the cheap stuff last but you've served the best the highest quality uh last and that doesn't make sense well i don't think that when the lord says here through his servant john that when they have drunk freely that it's a reference to the fact that they were intoxicated. So I have to say with that episode, I think they misrepresented the reading of the text. Uh, with that said, I wouldn't say don't watch the series, but you, like anyone, need to watch discerningly. I saw uh, an episode here in season three with my grandson, and it was on the Sermon on the Mount, and they, I don't think they did a good job with it. Uh, in terms of how the Sermon on the Mount unfolded and the help, quote-unquote, that Jesus needed to get from Matthew and and so on. Um, But again, you have to recognize that when they produce series like this, there's a certain artistic license where you fill in the in-betweens and uh, what does it look like and how did it unfold and where was Nicodemus when he met Christ at night. And so there is a certain amount of freedom you have to give them to be able to produce a show, but I think in a few cases they've stepped over the line. So that was a little disappointing. Um, So let me just talk here about this uh, verb that is translated drunk freely. Um, Certainly in Greek literature, it can refer to someone who's intoxicated, but there are many cases in Greek where it simply means to satisfy or to be full. And even in the Old Testament, in what we call the Septuagint, if you read Jeremiah 31, there's two verses in that chapter, verse 14 and verse 25 of that chapter. uh, The same Greek verb is used, and clearly it's not in reference to uh, someone who is high or buzzed or drunk. In fact, it can be used of someone who is drunk freely of water or anything else. So um, the King James uh, renders it, And when men have drunk well, uh, and that's a good, I think, rendering. So it doesn't necessarily carry the connotation of someone who is high. It's not a big deal that the bologna sandwiches uh, have been substituted for the roast beef and the Czech cola has been substituted for the Coca-Cola because the good stuff is out. But I think it's nearing, really, a misrepresentation of the sinless character of Christ to say that he's actually helping people to sin. Well, now that they are a little bit buzzed and they can't tell the difference, he's going to really provide the best wine, and then he's really making them more buzzed. And I I think that's a misrepresentation of the text. Now, I I will say that out of all the English translations that are rendered— Uh, most all of them say drunk freely. Uh, The NIV uh, says when men have become drunk. But again, I think that misrepresents the character of our Lord. And sadly, the New American Standard 2020 says when men have become drunk. But all the other English translations simply say when men have drunk freely. And I think that's really what's in view if you're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So there are interpretive issues. Is it wrong to say have made drunk? Well, not technically, because the word can mean that when someone has become drunk, but it doesn't always mean that. And context would determine, and not to mention you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. I, I think of you know, Proverbs 23 where it says, Do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. So clearly, he's talking about intoxicating wine in Proverbs here. Uh, He speaks of a time when it's sparkling in the cup. That speaks of fermentation. So there's obviously a time when it doesn't sparkle in the cup. And so again, oinos or yayin, can be used of either freshly squeezed grape juice. They didn't call it uh, grape juice. They called it wine. Sometimes they would preference it by saying it's sweet wine or it's new wine. That is, it's freshly squeezed. But when it was fermented, they still used the same term uh, to describe it unless they wanted to specify that it was fermented, and then they would use the term strong drink. And so two things are very clear in Scripture. One, it is forbidden to drink straight, strong drink, and it is forbidden to get drunk. Well, you've heard me many, say many times, before you can apply a passage to your life, you have to ask, what did it mean to the original audience? And by strong drink, we're not again speaking of the fermented alcohols that come nearly a thousand years, some would say eight hundred, but somewhere between eight hundred and a thousand years after the Bible is completed, then we begin to develop distilled alcohols uh like like vodka or whiskey or rum and so on uh But God speaks negatively of strong drink, in fact, he forbids a priest to drink it in the book of Leviticus, and we might say by application today, we are all believer priests. Uh, Solomon tells us that it's a brawler. Uh, He tells us a ruler shouldn't use it in Proverbs 31 because he's going to pervert justice. Uh, Isaiah says strong drink is bitter to the one who drinks it. Uh, Micah the prophet also speaks negatively of it. So there's all these negative uh, inferences to strong drink. However, you could also, according to Proverbs 31, give it to a, a, a dying and despairing person. Someone who's at the end of life and is an act of mercy, you might give it to him. But uh, it was typically used. You can't technically say that it's a sin to use fermented drink. You say, well, it sounds like double talk, Pastor. Well, it's not in this sense. And again, by fermented drink, I'm not speaking of the distilled liquors, but I'm just talking about it in its biblical context, about wine that had fermented that had begun to sparkle in the cup. Why can you say it's not a sin to use it? Because they would mix it. They would mix it with water. And so in many places in the world to this day, if you just drink straight water, you will get sick. But there is a substance in alcohol, in fermented wine, it's not the alcohol itself, but another substance that kills bacteria and makes it safe to drink. And so in that situation, it was okay to use strong drink. Again, not vodka, not whiskey, but we're talking about something that has a much lower proof to it because it purified the water. And so how do I know that that's the way a Jew or the early church would understand it? Again, you go to outside literature. You can go to pagan literature written by the Greeks and the Romans, and they describe strong drink as something that was just fermented wine that had fermented and it speaks of it as something that barbarians did which is somewhat surprising because they were really barbarians themselves in addition when you go to a pastoral manual known as the didash some would date it at 128 ad some would put it a few decades after that but the didash was a Uh, early pastoral manual. And so when you went to celebrate the Lord's Supper, there would be times during the year when naturally fermented, uh, when when naturally squeezed grape juice was not available. They didn't have the preservatives that we have in our day. And so when it was not available, you had to use fermented wine. And it was very particular that you mixed it in a five-to-one ratio, five parts water, one part wine. There's Jewish literature as well that rabbis would use in comment on the Bible. And in the Jewish midrashes of one type or another, they made it very clear that you did not want to be guilty of using strong drink. And so you mixed it, typically in a four to one ratio. My point is, is that you would have a bladder problem before you would have a a problem with being buzzed. And so God forbids the use of strong drink, with the exception of purifying water. And I think we're very foolish today to participate in using alcohol. Christians who use it are, A, naive. Uh, They think that Christians like myself are just ignorant fundamentalists, and they are actually showing their ignorance. Robert Stein, like a beer stein, Uh, He was a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary. I think he's gone home to be with the Lord. I'm not positive on that. I tried to visit with him at Southern Seminary where he was a professor some years back, about a decade ago, but he was not in his office that day. But I have a good friend that knows him. I, I need to ask him if he's gone home to be with the Lord. But Stein wrote a superb article that appeared in Christianity today. It's called Wine Drinking in the New Testament, and it appeared in 1973. Uh, Christianity Today has really gone over the edge. They're not considered a conservative, evangelical publication any longer. Uh, They began to drift in the late 1980s and throughout the next few decades, and today they uh, have many articles that would be written by what we would consider a staunch liberal and not an evangelical. That's not to say that they don't have some uh, evangelical authors, but it's really a mixed bag at this point. But they would never publish an article like that today because it would argue for abstinence and that um, Stein's argument is really solid. So for someone to prove otherwise, they have to go back into the biblical context and exterior literature to see Uh, if they can come up with another argument, and they can't. Dr. Norman Geisler may be one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. And into the 21st century, he died just a few years ago. I had him as a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He later left that school and started his own seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. But he wrote many, many helpful books to the body of Christ in terms of Christian apologetics. He wrote an article. I think it's in the uh June-July issue of 1983 of Bibliotheca Sacra, BibSac for short. It's one of the, it is the oldest continuously published theological journal in the United States. It started at uh Oberlin College in conservative hands. It drifted at one point. Dallas Seminary rescued it in the 1920s. And they've had its uh, publication ever since. But he wrote a superb article, also similar to Stein's, but with a little more scholarship um, for the careful reader who knows Hebrew and Greek. So it puts it at arm's length for someone who doesn't understand Hebrew or Greek. But my argument with that is that he was a scholar of scholars Not some ignoramus, and he also argued for abstinence based on how one should understand strong drink. Look, I used to argue for abstinence simply on the basis that uh, to use alcohol today, it has the appearance of evil. And you certainly wouldn't want to see me as a pastor having a glass of wine or uh, a bottle of beer in front of me in some restaurant. It might be embarrassing to you if I were your pastor and you introduced me not to mention because of the abuse of alcohol in our day, people would look at me and say, well, you see, he's a hypocrite. He's getting buzzed like the rest of us here. So it certainly has the appearance of evil in our day. Secondly, it can cause people to stumble. More and more people are being saved out of drug and alcohol backgrounds. And if you model the use of alcohol, then they might think, well, he's a great Christian. He's a strong believer. And if he can use alcohol, I can too. Uh, But because of um, your addiction to it, because the one who sins becomes a slave to sin, Uh, no, you would be unwise to use it as well. And then you really have to ask, does it glorify God in our day? And I don't think it does. Uh, It's an evil industry. Look at the destruction that they are doing to young people on college campuses at spring breaks and, of course, it is the link to social uh, destruction in this nation and to sexual immorality. On those three reasons alone, it would be wise to abstain, but it's not as gray an area as we would make it. It's much more black and white, and that God says don't use strong drink uh, in its natural form unless you're giving it to a, a dying and despairing man or as exterior literature in the Bible proves, unless you're mixing it with water to purify the water. So I hope that helps.
0: 843 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Paul from Bluffton writes, At a Bible study yesterday as part of a study in Malachi, the question was posed, Did God really hate Esau when he said, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated? In kindness and respect for each other, we didn't agree on it. Some seem to believe that God hates in the way we emotionally define hate. Others identified it as rejection. Even though Esau was the firstborn of the twins and by Jewish law should have been the chosen one, God chose Jacob. It also says in Genesis 22 that Esau
1: was blessed.
0: Can you please
1: clarify? Well, context is everything, and in God loving Jacob and hating Esau... It doesn't have anything to do with the human emotions of love and hate, but it does have everything to do with God choosing one man and his descendants while rejecting the other man and his descendants as being the uh progenitor from which the Messiah will come. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. It's quoted in the book of Romans and it comes from Malachi. So you guys are in a study of Malachi and and that's where it comes. So as I turn to Malachi, uh, in the typical fashion, there's a series of questions that he always starts with. Um, and after he asks the question, he basically answers his own question. And so here in Malachi, it's easy to find it's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi lives at the end of the age. In Malachi chapter 1, I'm just flipping there, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. So they ask the question, how have you loved us? How have you loved us, the Hebrew people? And so God accommodates them. He answers their question. He stoops down And he basically says you don't know how i've loved you what do you mean how have i loved you and he says was not esau jacob's brother yes he was Uh, yet i have loved jacob but not esau and again this is precisely what paul quotes in romans chapter 9 jacob i loved esau i hated now i will say that some use this passage of scripture to say from Romans 9 that God chose one boy to go to heaven and the other boy to go to hell. I don't think you can make that case because uh, I don't think what's in view is that ever before these babies were born that God determined one baby to go to heaven and he determined the other baby to go to hell. And it's a misrepresentation of that whole section of Scripture. Romans 9 through 11 is not dealing with uh, God choosing some to go to heaven and others to go to hell. He's dealing with the subject of Israel and why it is that Israel is an unbelief. He finishes chapter 8 by reminding us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, the natural question is, God, you said that you loved us with an everlasting, eternal love. And so What is Israel's state? Because they are in unbelief. Most of the Jews in Jesus' day did not receive him as the Messiah. And so does that mean that God has abandoned Israel? And so in Romans 9, he reminds us that of all the nations of the world, God selected Israel to be the nation from which uh, he would bring the Messiah. In chapter 10, after he deals with Uh, Israel's election. He deals in chapter 10 with their rejection. Why is it that they were in unbelief? And and the answer he gives is the same for today. Why is it that the average Jew is not for Jesus? And again, it's because in rebellion, they are self-righteous. They don't see their need for a savior. Like many Gentiles across the planet, they think that they can justify themselves by what they do. No need for a doctor unless you're sick No need for a savior unless you see you need saving. And then in Romans 11, he reaffirms what he has just said at the end of Romans 8, that he hasn't abandoned Israel, that he is going to restore Israel in the future, that he's always had a remnant of believing Jews to this day. There's at least 200,000 Jews in America alone that say Yeshua Hamasiach, Jesus is the Messiah, And uh, there are Jews across the world. There are now some 30 congregations. There used to be 12. Someone updated me recently, and they said there's uh, 32 congregations of believing Jews that meet across Israel who believe Jesus is the Messiah. So God's always had his remnant. But what is in view in Romans 9 and is in view in Malachi is how God chose the descendants of Jacob and not Esau, to bring the Messiah and we know this from Genesis 25 do you remember that day when Rebecca she feels like she has a war in her room and it says uh, in Genesis 25 but the children struggled together within her and she said if it is so why then am I this way so she went to inquire of the Lord and God gave her kind of a divine sonogram here the Lord said to her two nations in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body and one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger and so the twins Jacob and Esau God makes it clear that the older Esau is going to serve the younger who's born second and so with that said uh, this I loved Jacob and hated Esau It's being used that he would choose one because you can't have two boys who are going to bring the Messiah, only one of those two boys. So it's really being used in a comparative sense. Very often in Scripture, the word hate just simply means to love less. And so if you remember, I'm in Genesis, and if I turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 29, uh, do you remember that case where Jacob worked seven years for Rachel And then he's tricked by his father-in-law, and he ends up um, taking uh, Leah. And we're told in Genesis 29 and verse 30, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban for another seven years. So he loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, it's interesting, there's no mention here about hate, but then in the next verse, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. If you have the New American Standard, you'll see that it's footnoted. And the word unloved, literally it says in the Hebrew, it reads hated. In fact, uh, other translations like the ESV render that way. When the Lord saw that Leah, Leah was hated, he opened her womb. So it's, it's a Hebraism of sort. The word unloved or hated just means to love less. And Jesus, by the way, used this same common Hebraism when he described discipleship. In Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does he mean? I'm supposed to hate my father and mother? That seems a contradiction to Scripture because of the commandments in the Decalogue. We are commanded to love our father and mother. In fact, Paul reminds us in Ephesians, what, what God said through, uh, Moses and Deuteronomy, that this is the first commandment with a promise. So we're commanded to love father and mother. Um, when the Lord though, calls his disciples to hate even their own family members. Again, he's using it in a comparative sense. Um, I thought I'm supposed to love my wife as Christ loved the church, and yet I'm told here that there's a restriction on love in reference to family members like father and mother, and well, it's in reference, comparatively speaking. Uh, I'm commanded to love my wife, but this verse teaches here in Luke that she's not to be number one in my life. Uh, She knows, Audrey, that the Lord is number one and that she's number two, and that's the way she wants it, because she knows that when the Lord's number one, I'll love her a whole lot more. In fact, the comparative sense comes out in Matthew 10. It's a different day, a different occasion, but on that day, he doesn't use the Hebraism. There he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So he doesn't say hate or love. He says more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So clearly Malachi is not talking about heaven and hell. He's referring to two nations, the descendants of Jacob. Uh, Jacob's renamed Israel. And so we speak of the Israelites and the descendants of Esau are called Edomites. And so what's in view here is national election that God chooses the people of Israel over the people of Edom—that is the descendants of uh, 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 of Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And if you think about it, you can't have one quality without having the opposite quality. You can't have hot without having cold. You can't have big without having small. You can't have high without having low. There can be no love without hate. There can be no love without choice. I mean, if a judge loves justice, he'll hate crime. If a doctor loves his patients, he'll hate disease. And if you love God, you know, you'll know you hate evil, you'll hate drugs, you'll hate pornography, you'll hate liberalism, you'll hate abortion. And so God in loving Jacob and hating those who would become one of Israel's worst enemies, the Edomites, that was an act of love. Um, but it has nothing to do with going to heaven or to hell. It has everything to do with... With God's choice. You could also in Romans 9 argue uh, Isaac I loved and Ishmael I hated. Did Ishmael go to heaven? Yes, he did. We know that. We know that for a fact. Now, we know that Esau's end uh, sadly was different, but Ishmael went to heaven. And yet God chose Isaac over Ishmael because, again, he has to narrow the focus, narrow the scope, because it's through one man's descendants that he is ultimately going to bring the christ the messiah of the world
0: eight four three five two five one eight five nine if you have a question on today's bible line a reminder that if you did have a question and uh, didn't get a chance to hear all of the answer you can always go to our website wagp.net and click on the bible line archives to listen to today's or any of our previous bible lines a listener from worcester massachusetts writes i think i've heard you say in the past that the new birth does not precede salvation and that this is a modern-day false teaching. Is there any scripture that would back up this understanding?
1: Well, there are certainly people in the um, so-called Reformed faith, and I've said it many times that the word Reformed has been kind of robbed from the body of Christ at large, much like the word Charismatic. You know, am I a Charismatic Christian? Yes. And that I believe there are spiritual gifts that are given to the church today. Uh, Do I believe that I should speak in tongues? No, because I think that was a unique expression that was done in the first century in a miraculous way, very different from those today who speak in tongues, whether they be Pentecostals or Charismatics or, or Hindus who do some of the exact same things that the Pentecostal Church does. They laugh without control. They bark like dogs. They speak in tongues. They fall faint on the floor. Um, Hinduism, uh, does these very things. So everything that's spiritual is not spiritually good. Uh, we wage war against spiritual forces. With that said, I don't think that, uh, some of my brothers in Christ who teach that you are regenerated before you believe that they're evil people. I think they're just wrong. Um, Look, both can't be right. It's like baptism. Many in the Reformed faith argue for infant baptism, as did Calvin. But infant baptism and post-conversion baptism, both can't be correct. Someone's right, someone's wrong. But the argument, and it really goes back to some of the Protestant Reformers. And so typically, if you go into a church today and they refer to the Lord's table or baptism as a sacrament, they're typically infusing more into the ordinance than is actually revealed in Scripture. By sacrament, they are arguing that there is some kind of grace that is infused. And so Martin Luther, for instance, taught that a person was born again when he was infant baptized. And then he argued that if uh, his born-again work in his heart uh, was genuine in the sense that um, it it's stock Then he would later believe. And so he took the verse out of Romans chapter 2 there towards the end of the chapter where he speaks about Jewish people, and he says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men but from God. And so um, Luther just substituted Christian for Jew and baptism for circumcision, and his point was is basically your your baptism has become non-baptism if you don't believe. And so if you want to read uh, Romans two twenty five through 29 that was Luther's argument but there was a certain degree of truth to where he was coming from like Calvin in that they both affirm that um, man is dead in his trespasses and sins Paul reminds us of that and he says there's none who seeks God no not one Jesus said in John 6 unless the father draws you unless the father draws a man no one can come to the father so I wouldn't deny that there is a pre salvation work that um is a work of the spirit of God that has to take place because man independently of God cannot come to know the Lord in a personal way. So there is that pre salvation work, but I think he does not does that pre salvation work to anyone who is responsive to the revelation he is given and so when he the spirit of truth comes he'll convict the world of sin righteousness and judgment and so the spirit of god does open up people's hearts so that they can hear the gospel but that does not mean that they are regenerated uh, regeneration or being born again happens after you believe not before you believe and so for instance in john's gospel when Jesus has an encounter with Nicodemus. He is speaking of the need to be born of water physically and to be born of the spirit, spiritually. And, of course, he ends up asking the question, well, how is it possible? And he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so Jesus' answer is clear. To be born again, you have to come in faith. So you're not born again before you believe. You are born again when you believe. And he uses the illustration that would have been familiar to him as a Jew, that when the children of Israel had been bitten by poisonous snakes and were dying and passing out, You know, they sought God at that point. They went to God's man. We've sinned against God. We've sinned against you. Pray for us, Moses. And Moses interceded for the people. And God's solution, it's recorded in Numbers 21, was make a snake out of bronze, just like the one that bit the people, and set it high on a pole so that anyone could see it. Remember, there's 600,000 men, excluding women and children. So some would put it as many as 2 million people who were involved in the exodus put it high on a pole because God doesn't want to hide salvation. He wants to offer it to man. And it will come about that if anyone just looks at the bronze snake, he will immediately live. So they were bankrupt. There was nothing they could do to redeem themselves. They couldn't pray more. They couldn't, you know, be kinder to their neighbor. There was nothing they could do unless God rescued them. And God came up with the solution. And, of course, Nicodemus understood that event. And Jesus said, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes me in him have eternal life. And so he is answering the question, how are you born again? And the answer is you have to believe. So he doesn't put regeneration before faith in fact when you come to the end of john's gospel it says therefore many other signs or miracles jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which were not written in this book but these have been written so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that believing you may have life in his name so it's written you read it you believe it you have life the order is clear and that's what you find in ephesians 1 in him, and Christ, you also have to, after listening to the message of salvation, the gospel, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you hear the message, you hear the gospel, you believe, and then you receive the Holy Spirit. So to put regeneration before, I think, is really to misrepresent what God has plainly said. So John Piper, a uh, five-point Calvinist himself, says, we can say, quote, first, that regeneration is the cause of faith. Having been born of God results in our believing. Our believing is the immediate evidence of God's begetting. No, that's wrong. That's just false, just like it's false for him to say that Jesus didn't die for everyone, that he died just for the elect. You are not regenerated before you believe. Now, there's a work of the Spirit of God so you can't take any credit for your salvation and say well independently of god you know i started thinking about this or that and started reading this book on apologetics and all this nonsense that people put into their testimonies like they are the great ones like they can take credit no it is a work of god from beginning to end but neither does it deny free will and neither is regeneration taking place before um, genuine faith. So anyway, I hope that helps. It's a, it's a good question. You might want to take my course in the Institute of Biblical Studies on Soteriology, and I deal with the uh, five points of Calvinism, and I address this issue in detail.
0: All right, very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. Nancy emailed her question. She says, I desperately need your input on what has transpired at my church. Our pastor, age 50, was unfaithful to his wife, wherein he, for months, was texting and staying alone late at the church with a 20-year-old female member. After all of this surfaced, the pastor has admitted that he was unfaithful but did not commit adultery. Before the church could ask for his resignation, he resigned. I've recently learned that he's been given a severance package of one-year salary and one-year occupancy of the home. The elders abdicated this decision and passed it on to the church deacons. I believe he has committed adultery even though he claims there was no physical contact. Also, I do not agree with the deacon's decision to provide the severance package. There are many different opinions in the church, which is confusing to me because it seems very clear that this was adultery and the severance package was awarding sinful behavior. I extremely respect your knowledge of the scriptures and would appreciate Your input, please help me to find clarity in this heartbreaking matter.
1: Well, this lady who writes from Michigan uh, asks a really important question. There's a lot of issues that are really going on here. When you say the elders abdicated this decision and passed it on to the church deacons, right off, that was a mistake. This is what they are called to do elders lead and rule deacons serve at the will of the elders and so for them to pass the buck to the deacons and say well you guys decide what needs to be done uh, that's a huge mistake because the qualifications though there are many similarities between an elder and a deacon they're not identical and so the elders are the spiritual leaders in the church and they should have made that decision now sadly Um, this pastor was alone with a female uh, member of the church, uh, which in and of itself should have been a violation of policy. And I'm assuming it was. I don't know because you don't say. But certainly, you know, for a pastor to be alone with a woman at the church late at night is a terrible thing. Number one, it has the appearance of evil. If some woman said to me, well, Pastor Carl, the only time I can meet with you because of my work schedule is at 8 p.m. at night. And I was wondering if you could meet me up at the church so that, you know, you could counsel me. I would say, well, the only way I can do that, I suppose, is if I can get, you know, other staff members to be there in the building with me. Uh, So it's very, very foolish on his part to have done that, not to mention that he is texting some woman to whom he is not married. Very, very foolish. He opened the door of his heart, Uh, and he obviously admits something, or he wouldn't be resigning. Uh, So he's admitting something, and sadly, more than likely, you're probably right. He did commit adultery. But there were some policies that should have been in place. For instance, uh, I have a policy that none of our staff men can ever ride alone with a woman of the opposite sex who's not a family member or um, unless they have someone else in the car. Uh, So why? Because it has the appearance of evil and it's in our policy manual. And if someone does that, well, sorry, you're fired. Real simple. Um, We had to, not because there was any improprieties, because there was absolutely none, but we had to, to protect the staff, also make a policy that if someone emails you or texts you, um, you need to be very cautious if this is a single woman and you take the necessary guards to protect yourself. And when is it appropriate to respond back? When is it not appropriate to respond back? And those are important questions that need to be asked. Now, in my opinion, for what this man did, uh, you know, sometimes, okay, 50, he's probably married. He might even still have dependent children at home. You know, and you hate to be cruel to the wife and to the children because of this man's foolishness, even if he didn't commit adultery, but he committed gross impropriety. He hurt the testimony of the church. Again, his actions are being called into debate here, and so you say the church is split. Did he literally commit adultery or not? Again, because of appearance issues, what he did was, was very, very unwise, and so sometimes you have a situation where, okay, We cut the man's uh, salary tomorrow, and then, you know, within a month or two, uh, they lose the house. The family's out on the street unless they can provide some other way. I think some kind of uh, uh, severance package might have been fitting maybe 30 to 60 days max to take care of the children and to take care of their immediate needs and that the wife might have. But to give the guy a year's salary, I think that's not wise. And again, you know, the deacons, they shouldn't have been making this decision. The elders should have. And if they needed to confer with other wise elders in another church, they should have done that. But it was handled very, very poorly. And it's a sad situation that repeats itself thousands of times over across America, with people who are in full-time ministry.
0: All right, very good. I think we've got time for another question at least. Christy from Beaufort writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy, I've recently heard a lot of good things about Hillsdale College in Michigan offering courses at no cost as they have a donor who sponsors these classes online. I was told they are strong in the Constitution. I was wondering what's your opinion of the college and if you feel high schoolers would benefit from their classes?
1: Well, Hillsdale College is a good school. Uh, It has, you know, some very, very high standards. They have a little rag of sorts that they put out on different issues from time to time. I think I get it four or five times a year. I did a revival once at a church in North Carolina, and one of their graduates was there. This was back in the late 90s, and he signed me up for it, and I've been getting it ever since. Uh, There are certainly a number of Christians at Hillsdale College, I wouldn't define it as a Christian school as such, but a lot of Christians go there. And certainly one of their fortes is constitutional law and understanding the Constitution in its historical context. And so they read the Constitution, they study it, they read the Federalist Papers, the Declaration of Independence. And and by the way, that now happens in South Carolina, uh, be, coming this year for the first time ever, And I don't want to brag on my son, but it was his seven years of hard work um, where he took a law that was already on the books, Jameson, and uh, reminded the senators and various representatives that the law was being disobeyed. Uh, And today you send your child to Clemson or USC and they're indoctrinated in socialism and critical race theory and all kinds of heresies that are contrary to Scripture and contrary to the Word of God. Critical race theory, I hope you know, has nothing to do with racism in its biblical sense and definition. With that said, uh, Hillsdale teaches the Constitution, and they do a great job with it. Uh, Not everyone is a uh, believer by any sense. I um, took a group of college students there's a ministry known as passages and uh, there are some people who started that organization like the owner of Hobby Lobby who's a born-again Christian he helps to underwrite it and his goal is to get uh, Christian college students overseas to Israel so they can have an experience in that land and hopefully develop a love for Israel because he sees more and more our nation is turning away from Israel. And, of course, that will happen in the end. All the nations of the world are going to oppose Israel. Yes, even the United States of America coming in the future tribulation period. But money, the seeds are being sown today. So his goal is to basically—they have a little skin in the game. They come up with $600, and he comes up with the other $4,000 to send them uh, to Israel for, for 10 days. So I was— a uh, quote-unquote faculty member, and I had a busload of students, and it's really interesting because they're supposed to all be born-again Christians, so I took my own little spiritual interest survey, and and, (laughs) excuse me, of the people on the bus, uh, really the majority of them were not born again. They didn't even know what the gospel was. Uh, Interestingly, during that um, training time, I met a faculty member from Hillsdale College, and he was a faculty member for Hillsdale, and he had his boss, and and as it turns out, I asked him about his faith, and uh, he used to, he said, be an evangelical, and now he was a Roman Catholic. In fact, uh, he was a little bit of a troublesome person on the trip, and that they had a pretty tight schedule on Sunday, and uh, the in-house worship was not acceptable to him. He needed to go to Mass, and anyway, it delayed the bus and everything else. But I said, you, you were evangelical, and now you became Catholic? He said, yes. In fact, he said a lot of our students at Hillsdale come in as evangelicals, and they leave as Roman Catholics. What would that tell you? It would tell you that the so-called evangelical really was not evangelical. Because if you believed in the evangelical faith, which, again, the word is watered down, it's difficult to use now. We have neo-evangelicals, and we have people who call themselves evangelical that really are not. And uh, they are teaching and believing a lot of twisted things. Um, But if you believed in historical evangelical doctrine, then you would believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And the Roman Catholic Church denies that. Now, if someone went to Hillsdale College and they had a sound theological footing and they were genuinely born again, they would never convert to Roman Catholicism. But today we live in an age where we have so many people who are pseudo-Christians, not really born again, and so they're easily swayed. And so to embrace Roman Catholicism on paper— is to deny salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And you don't certainly want to do that. But, you know, I think they have some great courses there. And if you've got a high school student who's interested in learning the Constitution, some of the courses they offer for free online are really superb and very, very well done. So I would encourage you to do it. All right. Well, we're out of time for today. Thanks for joining us for this Bible line. If you have questions, you can go to searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop-down uh, schedule, and you can click on Ask Dr. Brogi a Question. And sooner or later, we will hopefully get to it and answer it. God bless you. Have a great day as you walk with Christ.